I'm Matt Greer. I'm a real estate agent here in the East Valley, and I'm really happy to be here with attorney Rick Durfee because as a real estate agent, oftentimes there are situations where I have clients who need an attorney and I will tell them to go get an attorney, but they won't. And so I'm really happy to be here with Rick today because we get to talk about some of those situations, some of the issues that people end up facing simply because they avoided talking with an attorney. So I'm really happy to be here to talk about that with you. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And, and people do have a reptilian response to attorneys. Oh no, a lawyer, get away fast. Yes. So hopefully we can uh, mitigate some of that, maybe. They tend to wait until they need an attorney. Well, and there's which... deal makers and there's deal breakers and there's uh, let's go in and fight and make things nasty and let's find a way to make it work. So attorneys, different attorneys have different approaches. Yes. And so with real estate, attorneys are important because when you buy a home, you now have a large asset that one, you want to protect, but also eventually you want to pass it on to your children. And I have seen people who haven't taken these steps to protect their assets and create those plans. And the fighting that ensues amongst their children is, is devastating. And I've seen families completely torn apart by that. I'm sure you have as well. Oh yeah. First time I actually ever experienced this, there was a family and it, it stuck out to me because it was a family of six, uh, six children, just like my family. And these kids were best friends and what ended up happening was the parents passed away, they did not have a will in place, and these kids went from being best friends to absolute worst enemies. They were fighting over all of the belongings, all of the money. When it came to selling the house, let's just say it's the worst hardest, most difficult transaction I've ever had to deal deal with because none of the kids wanted to agree. And I mean, every little step of the way they wanted to fight. And it was an absolute nightmare. And when I say they left that, that whole situation worse enemies, I'm not kidding. Mm. And that is just something that I absolutely hate seeing. So for my clients, I mean, whether they have children or not, I really want to see them at least having a will or a trust. Yeah, a lot of times people think, oh, why do I care? I'm going to be dead. Uh, I, I don't care what happens to my stuff. But if they love their family, if, they, if their children and their grandchildren are, are important to them, uh, you'd think that they would want them to have a good relationship and to have them have a, a positive experience in administering the estate. And it can be a time of, there's great emotional turmoil, and then if there's financial turmoil on top of that, uh, people get stressed out and they behave badly. It's, I've seen it kill some family relationships, just, I mean, it's horrible. So I have a story I want to tell you about, because this, this <laughs> actually happened. It was here in East Mesa. A traditional family, and, and I'm just going to call them that. They're, they're actually, uh, the parents were immigrants, and they, they had a large family, lots of children. And, and the, one of the children brought the parents to me to say, hey, mom, dad, you should do some estate planning. And the parents said to me, oh, we're a traditional family. We have all these values. Our children are fully uh, uh, part of these values. We, they did joint tenancy deeds. They had multiple pieces of real estate. They did joint tenancy deeds with their oldest daughter, leaving everything to her. And they said to me, point blank, oh, she's, she understands our tradition and she knows that she's the caregiver and she's going to share this with her brothers and sisters when we go. Well, time passed. Mom and dad died. The, the younger son who had brought the client to me said, hey, my sister's got all this real estate, and she's not sharing it with us. And when we contacted the sister, her answer was essentially, hey, mom and dad left it to me, 
If they had wanted you to have something, they would have left it to you. Since they left it to me, it's mine. I can do with it as I please. Pound sand. And, and she won the day. We, we poked her and prodded her legally, but it, 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 the time and cost of, of, and the family aggregation, candidly was bad enough, the family just said, yeah, let her, let her have it walked away. But an outcome that I think was completely contrary to the parents' wishes, and that caused great heartache in the family because the parents were cheap. Yeah. Too, too cheap to, I'm not paying the legal fees to set up something better than a, a joint tenancy deed with one child and not all the children. Yeah, well, it's really interesting about that joint tenancy because that is the, the way people take title isn't something they always think about, whether they're going to do joint tenancy or tenants in common, and there's a big difference between the two. There is a, some other war stories with joint tenancy. I, joint tenancy has a place, but it can, ha, it can really backfire. I had another case where mother-daughter, mom put her only house, her only asset in joint tenancy with the daughter, and it sat that way for a long time. Uh, daughter then uh, had trouble in her marriage. Uh, the marriage ended. Uh, the daughter kept the mom's house, her interest in the mom's house, because they said, oh yeah, that's yours. But it ended up counting toward the daughter's half of the marital assets. So what she got in the marriage was less. And then she inherited a bunch of medical debts, which they, she couldn't pay. They sued. And it's not her house. So she didn't have the residential homestead exemption or protection that you might have as a personal residence, and her liabilities attached to mom's house. That's a nightmare. <laughs> it was a terrible <laughs> nightmare. So, so the equity got chewed up in mom's house, not because mom did anything bad, but because she had title and joint tenancy with daughter. So there are alternatives. Beneficiary deeds is one, and other things that, mm -hmm. that can prevent that sort of issue. But... Uh, we see people willy-nilly use joint tenancy, and it can cause issues with a step-up in cost basis, with creditor liability, with marital issues of the children, and all kinds of things. That if you don't know what you're doing, you can proverbially shoot yourself in the foot with joint tenancy. Well, that's where I hit an issue uh, a lot of times, because as a real estate agent, I can't practice law. I can write contracts, I can fill them out for, for clients in the deals that they are doing, but outside of that, they got to go to an attorney. And unfortunately, I see it a lot where real estate agents will step out of those bounds and kind of practice law. I imagine you probably ran into issues with that. But when it comes to taking the different types of titles and the tenancy, that's one of those situations where I stop and I tell a client, please go talk to an attorney. Please let them talk you through this and find the solution that's best for you and your situation. Yeah, so, you know, it's one thing because there is a line, but let's talk about some distinctions. It's one thing for an, a real estate professional to say, well, I'm advising you, it's my legal opinion that you need to trust. For example, whoa, I can see that's a problem. But it's a different thing to say, you know, lots of my clients have gone to attorneys and I consistently see them doing trusts. I think there's something there that you should check out. Yeah. That's not legal advice. That's merely giving the benefit of experience. Hey, I see other people who talk to attorney, attorneys doing this. Maybe there's something there you ought to go uh, look into. Yes, and that's that's fine, and that's where I really try and push clients and have them do where it's like, hey, I've seen this happen a lot. Let's go talk to an attorney and see what they have to say about your situation. I know personally I like trusts uh, just because when we're dealing with them, they're so much easier. Uh, when mom and dad pass away and they have a trustee handling the sale rather than the children when the emotions are high, the trusts just tend to be easier. 
way easier, way less expensive, a lot less boondoggle. The paperwork is easier. You don't have to go to court. It's private. It's quiet. It's quick. Simple. Yeah. You don't have to deal with the probate and all those issues. And, and, and even if a lawyer gets involved, because we've done both the probate and the complex trust administration on that end and, and, the, and the simple trust, we have had clients come and, and say, okay, what do I do? This house is in the trust. Can we sell it? And candidly, 15, 20, 30 minutes on the phone, and we talk through some details and help them understand some stuff, and they're off and running, as opposed to, oh, let's take six months to a year to do a probate and thousands and thousands of dollars of poking family members in the eye, picking fights later, uh, that finally we can sell the house. So the trust just, there's, there's still maybe a need for legal advice, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but it's just faster and cheaper and easier. Yeah, as well as one thing that I noticed with trust is, <sighs> kind of the ugly side of real estate, but when you pass away, if your property goes into probate, your children, your next of kin, are going to get so many phone calls. <laughs> Bombarded. Yes. The, those probate lists get published. Oh, yeah. And the letters are they are actually kind of entertaining. I've seen these. People will write them by hand and attach pictures of their children. Oh, take pity on me. I, I want to buy your house. And and every mechanism they can come up with to to play on the sympathies of of this family. And I've candidly seen some dirty, rotten, underhanded shenanigans that are, people are exploitative and abusive, and they get away with it because they can, uh, because nobody's stopping them. So it does really put the family in in the target zone for being hit up and exploited oh, yeah. and taken advantage of. I, I mean, I don't think people realize how easy. I mean, I can make a phone call and I would have that list in five minutes. Yeah. And, and why did they do it? Because it works. It does. <laughs> it works. And they are looking for people who are in that distress situation mm -hmm. who will sell that house for significantly less than it's worth. For cheap. Yep. Yes. And that's how investors, you know, make their money. And investors have a place. Um, but some of them can be a little vicious when someone's in probate. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen situations where family members who had no authority to do so and, and were not authorized signed sale documents. And even though when the, later the person who did have authority signed sale documents, because there's a cloud on the title now created by this uh, person without authority sticking their nose in and doing something they shouldn't, it ends up costing the family a lot of time and money and aggravation to unwind it and, and clean it up. Yeah, and so I've, I've just noticed that when clients have trusts, we don't have any of those issues. It's so smooth, and yep. we know who the trustee is, that's who signs everything. We don't have to worry about people popping up in the woodworks just having some sort of claim. We know. Right. And so I, I really like when people have trusts or have a clear will, just something that an attorney put together for them. Yes, even a will works. Uh, a will has still has to be probated. A lot of people think, well, I have a will, I avoid probate, right? No. The will merely gives the court instructions on what your intent is, so you still have a probate. The beneficiary deed, I want to add, has a place, especially in, in smaller, simpler estates with no drama. So, it's funny you bring it up like that because I have witnessed something with beneficiary deeds where... I knew this lady, so I first got into real estate while I was still stationed with the Army in North Carolina. And there was this lady who took me under her wing, mentored me. Basically, when she got back from Vietnam, she started buying houses. 
and she bought one then she bought two and towards the end of her life I mean she was collecting so much in rent that she'd tell me she'd be like yeah I just pay my electric bill all my other bills and then I usually have enough money from all my rent to go buy another house I mean she had nearly 200 houses Wow and her estate plan was every house had a beneficiary deed to her son oh my goodness and oh my goodness she wanted to build a legacy she wanted her son to have that money for the rest of his life and this guy had a midlife crisis and she had tenants in all these houses it took him about 12 months to get rid of all of them and i mean he had a cool car yeah <laughs> he had a cool house so but that money's not going to last the half-life of inherited money when it's distributed when it's received directly like that the half-life the time it takes for it to decline in value by half is eight years so yes. after 20 to 24 years it's gone it's gone so if you want that estate with 200 rental properties in it my goodness to last and to be something significant it takes a trust and it takes a, a particular style or kind of trust that's going to protect it in generation two and three and four so that it doesn't get gobbled up by that kind of nonsense yeah because i mean i felt like she really created generational wealth but this one kid didn't last did not last and she knew she she kind of knew going into it I mean I knew her towards the end and her son had had some issues in the past in and out of rehab and I was just like do you want him to just get this huge chunk of money like this so now a, a similar story because uh, this happened with during COVID had a, a family come in and it was a father and son and very fairly simple estate uh, but the father uh, had actually had a son and a daughter, and he named the son in a beneficiary deed. And then after that, the father got married. So he got married after, which is no problem, not a big deal, but, but because he's thinking, <laughs> I have a beneficiary deed, I don't need a will. And then COVID happened, and the son died first oh and the father died a week later so what happens with the house just saying <laughs> the wife got it <laughs> yeah that's uh, it was and it was complicated and messy and the fam there was uh, a big fight in the family and and that was a settled resolution there were other issues going on but uh, those beneficiary deeds they have a place I like them for when it's the right fit but they can also backfire. Yeah, I've seen them used, uh, I mean, we used one for my, my grandfather, but also I come from a family of nothing but real estate agents. So we all knew how to handle it, what we were going to do. Um, but that that's insane. The, the son passed away first. Yeah, so I always say the beneficiary deed will work if there's no family drama. So if there are multiple family members, if there's a special needs situation, if there's a competency issue, a substance abuse issue, uh, just a spendthrift issue, they're going to blow through the money, the beneficiary deed is a bad idea. So that's something on a case-by-case -case basis. The, the client, the person who owns the property, needs to evaluate, is this the right fit for my family? Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And it's helpful, I think, for clients to talk with somebody who's, yeah, we've done this a couple hundred times, we've seen what happens, let's talk through your family and see if this is going to be a good fit for you or not. Yeah, and they... Uh there are definitely some you want to review with an attorney before you get one because I've also had probably back in 2020 where an agent that I worked with came to me because they were confused because 
this mother wanted to sell her house, but she did not want her sons to know about it. It turns out she filed a beneficiary deed for her sons to get the house, and she was now trying to sell it. Well, she could, and she doesn't have to tell them. And, uh, well, it's just causing all sorts of issues. <laughs> the, the sons must have already known about it. Mom, yep. you can't sell that house because we're on it. Well, they're not on it. She yeah. can tell them to bounce in. Yeah. That's the point of a beneficiary deed. The beneficiary has no interest in it until you die, okay. and you can revoke it and take it back. Good. Okay. Uh, so, so you can say, yeah, sonny boy, I did name you as the beneficiary, but change my mind. I need the house to cover my long-term care in my elder years, or I want to buy a new house over there, or, or I'm uh, going to leave it all to my cat instead of you. Should, they can do that. That's good to know, because I know there's some confusion amongst that, so yeah. I like hearing that from you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that is one of the main reasons why I like trusts. The other reason where I have had clients use trusts uh, is privacy. So I've had clients who are in the public eye, uh, you know, athletes, uh, influencers uh, are becoming more and more popular, where I had one friend who was an influencer and they were just like, hey, one of my fans just showed up at my door. And they didn't realize that, you know, when they bought that house, their name was on the tax record. Yeah. And their, their name on Instagram was their legal name. And so this person looked them up and showed up at their house. And so what ended up happening was they moved, but they purchased the new home in the name of a trust. And so that was just one situation I've seen as well. So some interesting nuances on that. Uh, some states allow a trust to be essentially anonymous, mm -hmm. protect privacy. Arizona's not one of them. Technically in Arizona, for a deed to be compliant, it has to disclose the beneficiaries of a trust. Okay. But those beneficiaries are generally not indexed. What is indexed is the name of the trust. Yes. So so when people come to me, what should I name my trust? My family name is Jones. Should it be the Jones Family Trust? Well, it can be. Or should I put the John Jones and Mary Jones Revocable Family Trust? Should I do that? And the answer is no. Uh, you do not want an obnoxiously long name. You do not want to include the word revocable in the name of your trust because when you die, it's no longer revocable, and now you have a trust with revocable in its name that's not revocable. That creates issues. So generally a short name, and if you, when John and Mary Jones, if they would call it the Arizona Blue Cactus Trust, some other name, the, who's that, what's that, I don't know, it gives them a significant layer of privacy. Uh, now, now that does not give them asset protection. It's smoke. Bullets will go through the smoke. But it gives them some level of obscurity. It's harder to see them. It's harder to know that that's who it is. And so for the Corporation Commission website, you download a form, you fill out a PDF, you send it to them with a check, boom, got an LLC. That fast. Here's the deal, though. We call those naked LLCs. There's no operating agreement. There's no uh, def definition of who the members are. It, it, you'll have the filing with the Corporation Commission in Arizona, Secretary of State and other states, but there's no substance to it. And, and then uh, they treat it personal. You know, money goes in and out, in and out, in and out. They, it's like commingled money. Those single member, member managed LLCs get clobbered every day. They, the, the courts walk through them in the civil courts. In bankruptcy, they walk through them. 
having an LLC alone, oh, I bought a Nevada LLC. Well, well, did you use it properly? Is it properly documented? Have the taxes been reported properly? And if the answer to those questions is no, yeah, you, you, you don't have protection. A lot of people think they have protection and they don't. They've just been lucky. Yeah, and I've, I've seen people where they've gone and set them up and just like you said, they're, they're commingling funds, they're using it for personal expenses, and these people, I want to sit them down and just be like, just get rid of this LLC, go talk to an attorney, do what you need to do, to for, do whatever the attorney says, and well, ask that attorney how to actually manage this thing. So, yeah, let me build on that, because sometimes there is value to having that LLC that's aged. Yes. Especially with, with asset protection, age improves the level of protection. So let's say an LLC that's been around a while, but it was structured poorly or inadequately. Doesn't have documentation. There's only a single member and there's no, and there's no it's member managed instead of multi-member and manager managed. Well, we can take that inadequate LLC and we can upgrade it. Okay. We can, we can add members. We can convert it into a manager managed LLC. We can add a third party manager. So we can significantly bolster it up. And the fact that it has existed for a long time and owned the property makes it very helpful. So I've had situations where clients come and they go, yeah, I've had this LLC for a number of years and it owns this rental property over here and, and I finally can afford you. Is this enough? And we go, yeah, no, it's not enough. Let, let, let us show you how to fix it. The client fixes it and we set it up right. And then sometime later, the, a disaster strikes. There's some, some liability that happens. In fact, it's often with medical professionals, there will be some uh, predatory plaintiff that brought a lawsuit against him because, oh, rich doctor, let me sue you and get something from you. And, and as well as my rental property that now has a lot of equity in it protected. Well, the answer can be, if we've fixed it, yes. And the fact that the LLC was old actually helped uh, with the protection. So, I, so a lot of times, depending on how much hair there is on it, if there's uh, nasty, you know, non-compliance or misdeeds or abuse of the LLC, sometimes it is better to throw it away. But sometimes those old LLCs, they've aged. They, they have value. So we can tweak them a little bit and, and bring them up to par so that they actually provide protection. Well, and that's great news because on the real estate side, if for investors in particular, if they're trying to take out a loan to purchase a new property or renovate, it's a lot easier with an aged LLC. Yes. So much easier. Yes. And so that's that's great actually to hear that well, you can fix them sometimes. And, and yeah, thank you for mentioning financing because it's interesting, Len the lenders have flip-flopped back and forth on this. There was a long time when whether, if a house or a property was owned by a trust or an LLC, either one, lenders would just say, yeah, we won't touch that. They force you to take it out, get the loan on it, and put it back in. And that's okay. That can work. Uh, but but the more sophisticated or the better, uh, the, the lenders that have a more vigorous compliance department will go, oh, yeah, show us your LLC documents. Okay, yeah, we'll loan. Yes, well, and like with a uh, hard money lending, so when someone's going to buy a home to yeah. renovate it, they can't use a normal mortgage. Right. They have to use hard money, which is more of a business type loan. Sure. So they want LLCs, and if that LLC is aged, it makes getting that loan a lot easier. Right. So. So I was on I was on a bank loan committee for about ten years, okay. and would review loans. And the loan officer comes in and they kind of pitch the loan to the loan committee. Please, you know, approve the loan for my client. And here's all the things. And it was interesting. Uh, 
on that bank loan committee, there's there were lawyers, there were some insurance people, there were some finance people, there were bankers, traditional bankers. And sometimes the people with, uh, I'm trying to think of a generous way to say this, but less experience, that maybe were less sophisticated, would be intimidated by the LLC. But, but the people that had been around a while, me, I'd go, oh, it's in an LLC? How's the LLC structured? Show me the structure of the LLC. Let me see the documents. They go, oh yeah, we're golden here. You can loan on this, no big deal. And, and the bankers would go, really, really? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm really sure. Uh, so, uh, whereas, uh, again, if they lack sophistication or experience, that LLC can be intimidating to them. Hard money lenders, they know what they're doing. Oh, they do. they're, they're street smart. They know. They go, yeah, I can, I can lean this property. I'm in first position. I'm going to get my big fat uh, interest rate and, and all my uh, uh, pre-charged fees and on and on. So they, they know the deal. They know what they're doing. Yeah, yes. they're, they're not chumps. And a lot of times people will form those LLCs. And then when they go to get their bank account, the bank says, where's your operating agreement? <laughs> and that's when they print one off the internet. Yeah. And then later on, they run into those issues. Um, or they're not able to get the loans like you were just explaining where right. you review it and it just so it used to be horrible. you could get away with an LLC with no operating agreement these days if you want a bank if you want to get a loan if you're going to do any kind of estate planning or asset protection planning or tax planning you've got to have an operating agreement and the operating agreement needs to be adequate to your task yes because you can have a skinny little operating agreement that'll work fine for banking but it's not going to work for other things. It's not, it may not give you asset protection. It may not give you uh, tax planning. It may not give you a, the ability to use your entity effectively in estate planning. So, so the operating agreement has to be adequate to the task to which the LLC is going to be employed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I mean, you know, you're the attorney. <laughs> I agree. There's there's all sorts of different issues that you can run into, and it's it's so much better to start off with that attorney rather than actually having an issue and then needing to hire an attorney to solve the problem. Um, yeah, we call that preventive law. It's kind of like preventive medicine. So if you wait to eat right and exercise until after you've had some diagnosis of a nasty health issue, it's not going to work as well as if you've been eating right and exercising all along. Uh, you know, taking good care of your body, you get sick less, and if you do get sick, you recover faster. Same is true legally. Structuring your affairs early on in a healthy fashion and, and using them in an appropriate fashion is dramatically more effective and less expensive than waiting until disaster strikes. Yes. And uh, so I see that a lot with LLCs, with investors. The other issue that I see with investors is when they form a joint venture. Hmm. And I've seen some joint venture agreements where, you know, they hand it to me because I'm going to need it to be able to write the documents for the contract. And it's like a page it, and it just doesn't cover everything or they don't have a good exit strategy of what if someone wants to sell uh, and sometimes you know they could be family members who are going in on a deal and they've got this joint venture agreement that is I mean, literally like a page or two you, you know I, I'm almost astonished to hear that to me that sounds like somebody saying oh you know what I'm I'm moving from Phoenix to Houston Texas and I've got me four oxen and a covered wagon. Yeah. Like, what? What? There are so many modern tools that are way more effective, way more powerful than a joint venture agreement. Just I, joint venture agreements, especially the one-pagers, yeah. 
the, the parties in that, that's a general partnership, and the parties are going to have general liability for all the actions of their partners. Yes. So they're, so they're bozo partner who goes out and puts a whole bunch of home improvements on the credit card and then defaults on it, that the other party who it wasn't their credit card is still going to be, can be liable for the credit card debt. So joint venture agreements, that's like a covered wagon with oxen when you could have a big moving van or a, or a I don't know, a Tesla or a, you know, a, a pickup truck Anything. or something to, <laughs> instead of, instead of, I don't know, a covered wagon with oxen. I, wow. I've, I've seen that and uh, it's, it usually results from, oh, hey, I trust him. Well, I trust him and I found something on the internet. Yeah, trust him, found something on the internet or his attorney wrote it. Ugh. And it's like, okay, well, who's his attorney protecting? Him yeah. or you? Him. Yeah. And they don't have their own attorney go and actually check it out. Or it could be, you know, they're forming an LLC together, whatever it may be. Yeah. And they just That's an upgrade. Getting an LLC is a significant upgrade from, from having just a, a raw joint venture agreement. It's so much more protection with the LLC than a, than a simple joint venture agreement. I, I would be candidly surprised that an attorney would suggest or aid somebody at getting a joint venture agreement when there's better things to do. Good. And I'm, I'm glad. That's why I'm here. <laughs> One, to hear that stuff from an attorney because I have people bring this stuff to me all the time because usually they heard from some influencer and the influencer typically tells them the easiest thing so that the person just gets started, buys their course, and they go off. And it's no longer that, that person's issue. And so people get stuck with these really short-sighted answers that really don't put them in the best position. And they always tell them, don't worry about an attorney. Don't worry about that. Yeah. And it, you know, I, it's spooky to me when, uh, whether it's an influencer or a sharp salesperson, tries to commoditize solutions. And, and, you know, the Asset Protection Trust, the LLC have, in a lot of ways, been, been commoditized. They're turned into a, a thing. You can buy one and then you have one. Uh, but the way those devices actually protect you requires more than just having the commodity. Yes. It's got to be structured properly. It's got to be used properly. The tax reporting has to be proper. You know, another metaphor comes to my mind. My mom, my mom would love to bake. She's passed away years ago, but uh, she'd say, you know, the difference between bread and cake, they have the same ingredients. It's how you put them together and what you're doing with them while you're putting them together. Uh, so uh, the same ingredients can give you protection or not give you protection. And just possessing you know, flour and sugar and yeast and water and throwing it on the kitchen counter and mixing it around doesn't mean you have either bread or cake. It means you have a big mess on the counter. And we see a lot of planning that's kind of like that. If that baking metaphor is not a bad one. Well, that's, that's a good one. And it's, I, I run into it with my investor clients mostly. And then also, you know, people who have their estate who they're trying to find different ways to protect it. And they just find the quickest or first thing they find on the internet and they run with it. Uh, or my favorite is when they're online bragging about their asset protection measures. I, I don't know, that to me that's like going online and bragging about your crime. <laughs> like, I'm such a tough guy, look at the stupid thing I did and let me post uh, videos about it so the whole world can see and go, yeah, let me, let me, I'm going to attack that. Uh, that's crazy. I, I, yeah, I saw someone um, 
few years ago who got in trouble for it because they were bragging about how <laughs> they put everything in, in Wyoming LLCs because no one would be able to find them. <laughs> well, now we know where to go look. Yes, and then <laughs> they ended up having an issue, and when they had to basically disclose all their sure, assets, sure. they left those off, and the opposing counsel was like, hey, what about this that you're bragging about on, on yeah. Facebook? Yeah, yeah, amazing. So yeah. don't don't uh, uh, brag about your asset protection or confess your crimes or boast of infidelity to your spouse on social media. <laughs> it's about the same level of thing. Yeah, uh, oh, it, it really is. And so I, I run into, typically that's more my investor clients who end up doing something like that because they want to impress others. And it's usually the younger ones too Yeah. Um, who do that and they're just trying to get that clout and they just wind up shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, something that's important for the investor class of clients. This last week I met with a client, out, not in Arizona, uh, out of the state, and uh, this client had come to us, had been referred by another advisor, and we had recommended a pretty com complicated structure. <laughs> Multiple trusts, a management company, and a parent entity, and a bunch of subsidiaries. It was expensive and complicated. And the client, uh, after trying to recover from passing out when seeing our, our, our invoice, and it was for proposed work, we hadn't even done it yet. She goes, do I really need this? Is, is this overkill? And this was my answer, and this is significant. I said, well, it depends. Are you going to do what you say you're going to do? Are you really going to build a, a real estate empire and have hundreds of properties? If you are, you need it. Do it. Don't even hesitate. You'll use it. But if you're not going to do that, save your money. Go to the movies, buy popcorn, have to do something else. Don't write me that big check. You, you won't. If you're not going to use it, you don't need it. So, so for the person who's really going to build that empire with a large number of rental properties, uh, that they need the planning. If they're just going to poke it with a stick and talk about it, uh, don't do it. Save your money. They, they always end up running into issues, they just don't have enough uh, of a structure. And then, of course, you know, when they do finally age, like my one friend, pass away, they don't have anything in place. And I, I absolutely hate seeing it. And, like I said, I've seen families torn apart by not having a proper plan, and I'm sure that's something that you included with that lady. Uh, oh, yeah. Or all of that, yeah. Oh, yeah. A succession plan. Yes. And so it's, I like seeing that. And I've seen people on both sides of the fence, uh, investors who met with attorneys, set everything up correctly, and then had an issue. I mean, it, it can happen. Uh, something simple can happen. It can turn into a big problem. But they met with an attorney beforehand and set everything up correctly, and they didn't have any issues. Right. Others printed stuff off the Internet, ran into issues. And then, of course, families, when you know mom and dad finally pass away, they don't have anything set up, there's issues. When they have something set up, they're fine. And I've got friends who are, who are my age who were widows or widowers who actually already had stuff in place, and they're much better off. Yes. Always. Yes. And you know, we don't like to think about it, but the estate planning is putting things in place in case the unthinkable happens. And it's kind of the law of large numbers, if you have enough people we don't know which ones, but the unthinkable is going to happen to somebody. Yeah. 
and we don't always know which somebody it's going to be. And uh, you, probably both of us in our professional lives have seen enough times when, wow, uh, the young widow or widower who had the estate plan is in far better condition than the one who's suddenly finding themselves in this terrible, unthinkable situation with, without protection. Yeah. Uh, and it, it goes for all types of clients. I mean, my big investors, as well as just the people who just have one property that they live in. And so I, I always like to just talk with people no matter what they're doing, like, hey, talk to an attorney, you know, buy the house, go figure this out, talk with an attorney, you have children, set something up. Or I've had people where they're like, I don't have children, I don't have a next kin, who cares? And for them, I'm usually like, do you believe in something? Yeah, y you know, well, you, you keep triggering things, so it's interesting <laughs> on that. The people with no children, they often think, oh, I don't need planning, I don't have kids. Well, no, you need planning more. And let me give you an example, a significant one. Often people with no children, they're, it's either going to go to nieces and nephews or to charity. That's typically what happens. And if there's even a little tiny bit of charitable inclination in them, this is the question I want to ask. If something's going to go to charity, when do you want the tax deduction to happen? After you're dead or while you're alive? Can I get the deduction while I'm alive? Oh yeah, you can. We can avoid capital gains, we can get a deduction to offsets, offset uh, taxes when you sell or have income. So there's some pretty darn significant tax planning we can do to time when the deduction occurs so they get the benefit of it while they're alive, even if what the charity get, gets is deferred until after they're dead. And so there's, there, there's some fun and entertaining and powerful things we can do with that that's really, really yeah. kind of cool. I have no idea about that. That's that's actually really cool. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, I've I've had people who have said that to me. Just you know, I don't have a next kin. I'm not worried about it. And they, cause I had a client who asked me, just point blank, just like, hey, you know, I don't have a next kin. What happens? And and my answer was, well, if you don't, if you truly don't have a next kin, you know, it's gonna be it's sheeted. Or it's, I don't even know yeah, you don't want to go to yeah. You don't want to go to the state. Uh, well, maybe you do. I, I don't know. <laughs> Leaving it to the state you live in and to the IRS just doesn't sit well with me. And maybe some people, you know, I want to contribute to my share of the national debt. I want. I think the politicians <laughs> don't have enough money and control as it is. We want to give them some more. Uh, okay, uh, do nothing. Let it go. Uh, but man, if you think you might make better decisions with your stuff than other people, you decide. Yeah. Why give up control? Yeah, and why give up uh, the decision-making power? Even if it's not control, it's you can pick the social causes you support or you can leave that to others to do. And uh, It's been my experience that people who actually built the wealth and created it and are aware of what it took to do it and, and of its uh, intrinsic value are, are more mindful about uh, thinking how it would be best deployed to, to make the world a better place, even if it's not going to go for them. So people are better off making their own charitable decisions and defaulting to whatever the politicians want. The politician's agenda is going to be different than yours every time. Every time. Even if you're the politician. Even, yeah. <laughs> so. Sorry. So Matt, tell people how to find you. Yes, you can find me at macrorealtor.com. I also have a YouTube channel that is also macrorealtor. And... You can reach me on there. I have easy ways on my website to actually just go ahead and write me a message or even call me directly from there. Sweet. And Rick Durfee, you can find me at durfeelawgroup.com. We have a YouTube channel. You can get a hold of us. We offer complimentary consultations, a limited time complimentary consultation to give people an idea. What do I need and 
will it will it make a difference? So we, we can do that. And we love to collaborate with other professionals. We're team players. I don't like to do things alone. I want the real estate people to do what they do, the bankers to do what they do, the insurance and the accountant people to all do what they do. So. Well, that'd be great. If you're doing consultations like that, I have plenty of people that would love to come talk to you. Sweet. <laughs> so and likewise. We'll do that. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Thank you.